Okay, friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And we're continuing our series on Revelation. Originally, I think it was going to just be through these seven churches in Revelation, but I think the feedback that I have received is um, we want to keep going. You want to uh, you want to kind of really dig into and find out what this last book of the Bible and one of the most difficult to understand books of the Bible uh, has to say. Um, but for now, we are still in the section of Revelation in the chapters two and three that is dealing with uh, the revelation of Jesus coming to speak to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Remind ourselves in chapter one, John calls this the apocalypse. It's the, the unveiling. It's the pulling off of the lid uh, of Jesus. It's the revealing of Jesus uh, what is really the ultimate reality. And John has a vision of Jesus in chapter one. And then Jesus gives John this instruction to write down these words. These are the words of Jesus. And he is addressing to seven churches in Asia Minor. These are actual historical churches. And if you look in chapter 2, if you see your, uh, the heading above the scripture there, it would say to the church in Ephesus. So we saw the church of Ephesus is the first of the seven that Jesus addresses. And then he addresses the church in Smyrna in verse 8 of chapter 2. And then he addressed the church in Pergamum beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2. And fourthly, he addressed the church in Thyatira, which is in verses, verses 18 through 29 of chapter 2. It's one of the longer ones that he addressed. And now we get to chapter 3, where we have the uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, fifth church that Jesus addresses. And he's addressing the church in Sardis. And so if you would follow along as I read... From Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And as we do, let's pray. God, we come to your word and we want to hear what you would have to say to us. God, we believe that, that John really did see you when he was exiled on that island of Patmos, when he was imprisoned because he was proclaiming your word. We believe that you did indeed show up to John and that, Jesus, you gave these words and that these words apply not just to those seven churches in Asia, but they apply to us. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning and help us to hear what you would have to tell us. We ask you do this in Christ's mighty name as we read your word and all God's people said. Amen. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief 
and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. So here we come to these, this uh, fifth church, the church of Sardis. Verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. We've done kind of a little a brief historical tour of all of these ancient cities uh, to kind of get a little bit of background on who it is that Jesus is speaking to here and who it is that John is writing to here. And so here's a map, again, we've seen before. Uh, there's Ephesus, the first church, Smyrna, Thyatira, uh, Pergamum up here, then Thyatira over here, and then Sardis, right there kind of in the, the middle uh, inland quite a ways. It's about 35 miles southeast of Thyatira. It is a very old city. It dates to about 1200 BC, and it is actually has a very glorious history. It had a very large Jewish population there as well. It was devastated by an earthquake in AD 70, along with uh, nearby Philadelphia, who we'll see next week. And it was rebuilt with uh, Roman aid during the, um, during the, the reign of the, the Roman Empire, uh, and it was an Acropolis city. Now, what I mean by that is that an Acropolis is like an outcropping of, of rock, and it's a city kind of up on the, on a, at least, if not on the very top, on the peaks or on this section of rock. So here, let me give you a couple of pictures of kind of this, this white, uh, it's kind of a lightish colored stone outcropping of rock. And that uh, the city, the ancient part of the city, was up kind of somewhere on uh, these, this kind of outcropping of rock. The ancient city of Sardis was up there. But like I said, it was a very old city. Over time, especially uh, as it was rebuilt by the Roman Empire, uh, you kind of get a little landlocked in there. And so as the city was growing and expanding, they moved. And so there's actually kind of a two-tiered city. There's a lower city that kind of resides in the valley. And then there was the, the ancient or like the original part of the city was up kind of on these, uh, these uh, somewhere along those uh, kind of cliff rocky areas. Here's another kind of picture to give you an idea. So that's the ancient, the ancient city of Sardis is right there. Interesting about the history of Sardis is that twice, twice in its history, it was actually conquered um, while watchmen were neglecting their, their duty to kind of stand guard and watch. Um, it was thought to be a fairly in, in, impenetrable or impregnable, is that the word? It's very difficult to get into cities, right? Okay, and because of the cliffs. And so it was very, they felt actually quite secure that they were going to be protected from, from outside attacks. And so uh, it's, it's interesting that in history, twice the city was actually conquered when it, when it probably shouldn't have been. If only the guards would have been able to kind of be diligent in their task and stay alert 
and be mindful of the whole area of the city, especially the weakest parts where where soldiers might be able to kind of ascend up to where the city is if they would have only been able to kind of stay awake. And Jesus draws on a little bit of uh, their history here. One was in 547 B.C., if you want to go and kind of scour uh, books. If you don't want to do books, you could do Wikipedia, I guess. But scour a little bit of Sardis's history. One, I thought this was fascinating. Uh, there was a guy named Croesus who was the ruler of the Lydian Empire, which was the city would have been of Sardis would have been in the Lydian Empire in 547 B.C. And um, there was another emperor kind of to his east that was rising to power uh, over the Persian Empire who goes by the name of Cyrus. Does that name sound familiar? Actually, his name appears in, in the Bible. And so as Cyrus was rising to power, uh, 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 Croesus actually kind of felt a little bit threatened. And so he kind of wanted to preemptively strike Cyrus and his Persian kingdom. And so um, to get some assurance about this, he decided to go to an oracle, the oracle of Delphi. And so the oracle says these words, if Croesus attacked the Persians, he would destroy a great empire. And so uh, he was very encouraged by this and decided to attack. Um, but you have to listen very carefully to Oracle's words, right? Because he doesn't say the Persians will be destroyed. Uh, he says you will destroy a great... It's kind of ambiguous. It can kind of go both ways. Um, he was uh, encouraged to go and attack uh, Cyrus. Um, and what ends up happening is not the Persian... That's not the great empire that was destroyed. It was the Lydian Empire that was destroyed. He attacked, was soundly defeated, retreated back to Sardis, where there was another battle again on the plains below, and then he retreated up onto the top of these mountains where he thought he was going to be safe. And during, um, during the kind of encampment of, uh, of Cyrus and his people around there, he uh, and a couple of soldiers actually scaled up the cliffs in a secret way and was able to conquer and capture the city while the guards were kind of asleep, just not paying attention. They trusted in their own confidence, their own protection of their, their city, and they were actually defeated. The same thing happened again with Antiochus III, um, and it, they attacked in the exact same way. Um, strange how military leaders they like to study history and they they studied their history of what happened three or four hundred years 350 years earlier but both times the watchmen failed to to pay attention and to be awake and so both times sardis was was conquered i think that will play into the words that jesus has to say to the church in sardis too Put it this way about the city, the ancient city, this uh, uh, historian and archaeologist um, named William Ramsey says this. It was of Sardis. It was the city whose history uh, conspicuously. Cons uh, how do you say that word? Conspicuously. Thank you. I mean, this is over 100 years old. They wrote different back then. It was a city whose history was conspicuously and preeminently blazoned forth the uncertainty of human fortunes. Ah, the weakness of human strength 
and the shortness of the step that separates overconfident might from sudden and in, or irreparable disaster. It was the city whose name was, most, was almost synonymous with pretensions unjustified, promise unfulfilled, appearance without reality, confidence that heralded ruin. The name Sardis almost became kind of a code word for falling asleep at the wheel or, or being a little overconfident in your earthly protections. And as we gathered from our reading today, the church had adopted the same attitude that its city at large had. So as Jesus addresses this church, we have seen that he normally follows kind of seven step pattern. We have a description of who, who Jesus is, and we see that in verse one, uh, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, we saw that's a part of the vision that we saw in chapter one. And um, by the way, let's remind ourselves who it is we're listening to here. The words of him. This is the resurrected Jesus. It is because of his crucifixion and his resurrection that he has the authority to say these words. And Jesus, after his description of who, you know, of himself, normally in all of the other churches, he would go with a commendation. You know, he would say, like, I know your works, I know your faithfulness and your love and your steadfastness, how you don't, you know, you, you don't uh, like evil, you're fighting against evil and those kind of things. Sardis does not get a word of commendation for the whole church. Yes, he, he has a couple of things, positive things to say for a few at the end. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But he has no commendation for the church. Jesus goes straight to rebuke. And this is his rebuke. You're dead. I had to correct that. As I originally typed it, Y-O-U-R. And so it's uh, your, you're dead. Y'all are dead. Okay. Notice what he says here, the, uh, the end of verse 1 and then also at the end of verse 2. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And notice what he says at the end of verse 2. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God, the problem with Sardis is that they were a dead church. Now, what does a dead church mean? I, I think that many of us might have an idea of what we think a dead church might mean. Uh, but I would uh, say that we need to be cautious about not being influenced by what the world around us would would qualify as a, a dead church. We need to see what God himself has to say about what a dead church actually is. We need to get God's perspective on what dead means. So let's not uh, let's let God define it. Let's not define it as we or those around us might think of what a church, uh, a healthy church might be or a dead church might be. And here's what I what I mean by that. A couple of things to keep in mind in, in the United States of America. We tend to think bigger is better. Okay, um, 
So the bigger business would mean it's the better business, right? Because it's better. That's how it got bigger. Now, those of you who own a smaller business-ish or part of a smaller mid-sized business-ish, raise your hand, right? How many of you would be like, hey, I got some things to say about that? Like my small business actually does things better than the bigger businesses would. Can I get an amen from any business guys? In here? Okay, so uh, so bigger is not necessarily better, right? That's not necessarily true. Or put it this way, uh, being small is not the same thing as dying. Or being in the same way that being large is not necessarily the same thing as being healthy. Uh, declining attendance is not does not uh, equate to necessarily mean. Something is dying in the same way that growing attendance doesn't necessarily mean something is healthy. Joel Osteen's church is growing. Okay. So this is not necessarily true. So we need to kind of have God's perspective on what health, what, what alive is and what dead is. And so a couple of things to keep in mind. Of what healthy, uh, what a healthy church might be, is the gospel being proclaimed in its in its preaching, but also in the sharing of its members. Is the word preached or taught, expounded? Are people coming to know Christ? Are being are people uh, hearing the word, being convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin and turning from sin and turning to Christ? Are people growing in their relationship with Christ? Are the individual members of the church, as Peter put it in 2 Peter chapter 3, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Is Christ glorified in people's lives in the worship? Is prayer a feature of the, the life of the members of the congregation those are those are some things that we should keep in mind those are just a couple of things i thought down of some healthy marks of a church i like this picture that paul gives in ephesians chapter 4 of what a healthy church looks like and uh, he says this until he says the goal of you know um, the teaching offices of the church is to equip the ministry for the works of saints for the building up of the body for the doing the works of ministry to building up of the body. And then he says this, until we all attained unity, attained to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So as we're growing in our unification, our unity in understanding uh, of who Christ is and our confidence in faith in him. To mature manhood, he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I love that picture of what a healthy church would look like. It might be very worthwhile for us to do a deep dive into kind of like the marks of what a, a healthy church would be. That's kind of beyond our sp scope for today. Um, but uh, we have some 
some ideas of what a, a, a dead or dying church looks like in this passage. And then also with, in what we have seen thus far and how Jesus has addressed the churches. So, in, for instance, we had Ephesus. Uh, Jesus commends them for their doctrinal fidelity. But then he, he rebukes them for their lack of love, loss of their first love. In Pergamum, the issue was the compromise that they had with the, the kind of the pagan culture around. Let's just kind of mix things together with them. With Thyatira, um, Thyatiran church, it was a tolerance of sin, tolerance of teachings that would say uh, certain sins are, are okay to commit. Or I'll put it this way. A dying church, as we've seen already in our letters, a dying church um, loses their first love. A dying church compromises with pagan culture. A dying church is too tolerant of false teaching. And I'd add two more from today's passage. First, a dead church relies on their reputation and ignores their reality. A dead church relies on their reputation and ignores their reality. You have the reputation, Jesus says to Sardis, of being alive. But you are dead. The Greek word there for reputation, it's literally the word name. And name appears, that, that word appears four times. Uh, Jesus says a nice little play on words with name. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit here. But the Greek word there, if you want to write it on there, it's name. You have the name of alive. You have the name of kind of this great city. When in reality, it masked the reality that there was actually deadness in your church. The good name was just kind of the veneer that covered over some serious problems that were lying under the surface. And their church, just like the city, um, were resting on kind of their past glories. But ignorant to their present decay that was happening underneath. So I heard this illustration, one of the commentaries uh, I read this week, said it's kind of like looking up at the star in the sky that's like light years away. We're, we're only seeing the light that that star emitted however many light years away from that moment that we saw it. But that star could have imploded, exploded, however that's described. And we're only seeing the residual light of it. That's kind of like what the Church of Sardis is like. They're, they had this kind of projection that things were, things were okay. And Jesus uh, can see behind that he could see that that star has actually been extinguished. You've got, some, you've got some serious problems. So here's a lesson that we have for that. Jesus sees past the facade. Okay? Jesus sees past the facade or the veneer that we might put up to convince ourselves that we're uh, on a strong Christian walk. That's what Sardis was doing. And Jesus goes, you, that's your reputation. That's your name. But in reality, he goes, you're dead underneath. Or I'll put it, put it this way. Jesus is concerned with your present reality, not your past reputation. And this actually goes both ways. 
you know, it, it could go in that maybe you have a past reputation uh, that's really good, but your past reputation is, is hiding uh, something underneath that's not so good, or not so healthy, that's dying or decaying. And so the challenge for, for that type of person would be, what do you need to do to bring that, uh, your, your reality in line with the reputation that you have? Because to Jesus, he's, he's more concerned with the reality than he is about your reputation. Now, on the flip side, this also goes both ways as I was thinking about this. What if your reputation is not so great? What if your past life as a Christian or maybe even the earlier years of your Christian walk were a struggle? What if things were, uh, you have some things in your life that you, you professed faith in Christ for a long time, but you've had some life events, struggles, and difficulties, things that you just regret, that you're almost embarrassed to share? Likewise, Jesus is concerned more about your present reality than your past reputation. Are you walking with Christ now? Are you faithful to Christ now? Are you growing in your relationship with him? Or is a maturity starting to set in? Are your roots deep into Christ so that the fruit of the Spirit is yielding Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's what matters. That's what matters. Jesus is concerned with your present reality. So what's your present reality? Are you trusting on your, your past reputation? Or maybe your past uh, reputation um, is uh, something of which you're ashamed, but your present standing before Christ now is something that you cling to. Just heard a story not too long ago in the last couple of months of um, a church that was focusing more on its reputation than on its reality. And it's, this is, it's a sad story but a very, very well-known church had its pastor fall into a, a, moral, a moral sin. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm, many of you are probably wondering which one. It could be a handful. There's actually several stories like this. Half a dozen in the last year or so, right? And all of these leaders and all of these churches have a name. They have a reputation. And you had some serious deadness inside. And it came, it came out. And one of these particular churches, the, the leaders of the church went into kind of like a PR operation machine. Public relations, right? And it wasn't much longer, uh, much time after that, when that started to really crumble and fall apart and ended up that all of the elders had to resign. It was just a sad, sad story. 
But I couldn't help but think of that story of a church that has a name, has a reputation, and was more concerned about the reputation than the reality. So friends, let's, let's don't rely on your reputation. Let's focus on our reality. Don't ignore the reality of the ways in which we need to grow, we need to wake up. And Jesus addresses those here for us in a little bit. So that's one sign of a, of a dying church, is a church that relies on their reputation and ignores their reality. Here's a second one. A dead church rejoices in grace but doesn't go on to do good works. A dead church rejoices in grace but doesn't go on to do good works. Jesus says, I know your works. And then he says in verse 2, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Their deadness is connected with the incompleteness of what works that Christ was calling them to do. So you've, you know that our stance on how uh, how one is saved, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ of no alone, not by uh, the works of the law. That we believe was the, the, uh, is foundational to the gospel. Any kind of mixture of grace plus your works leading to your salvation is actually an undermining of the gospel. And it's what the Reformation was all about. But the temptation is, on the other side, to be cautious, is to see, uh, to not see the importance of doing good works at all. Okay? The gospel is, um, the well, let's put it this way. To, to think that we are saved by grace alone, apart from works, and then once we become a Christian, works are no longer necessary. That's not the whole gospel. That's like maybe a half a gospel, and that's actually, uh, which is no gospel at all. So that, that kind of view, so let me give you a couple of words to kind of picture this for you. That kind of view is called antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti means against. Nomianism or namas means law, meaning, hey, we don't need to follow any kind of moral guidelines, the moral law that God has provided for his people. There's actually some who have taken the gospel to mean that, that we're saved by grace through faith. And therefore, we don't have any like we're, we're forgiven, we're free. It's kind of the opposite of legalism. Right. Legalism would say, um, yeah, you maybe need some faith, but you need to be doing these kind of works in order to be to be saved. So those are kind of twin opposite whatever opposite heresies on the opposite extremes. Legalism says that we must do the works of the law in order to be saved. Antinomianism says we don't need to do works at all. It swings the pendulum in the opposite direction. It believes that uh, we are no longer obligated to keep the moral law of God. Believes that Jesus has freed us from everything, including obedience to the moral law. It insists that grace um, not only frees us from the curse, it also frees us from any obligation. Okay? Grace for antinomians then becomes license for disobedience. 
Again, this is not the gospel. One of my favorite passages in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says these words, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, meaning that whole thing, this whole thing of salvation, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? This is not, not a result of works. Salvation by grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. But then, uh, and I know a lot of people who have those two verses memorized, but don't realize verse 10 is right on the heels of this. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? So this faith that saves is a, is a trusting faith. It's salvation comes through faith alone, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's trust in Christ and his a blood, his atonement of which he speaks. It relies on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in your place. It relies on his resurrection because of the hope that we would have of new life and that everybody who would believe in Christ, it's credited to you as righteousness. Just as Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 12 of Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You want to be counted as righteous? Trust in Christ alone, faith alone. But, it's cautious but here, but let's not get the idea that because of the fact that we're not saved by works means that we are not saved to do good works. That's the point of verse 10. And of this, James is in agreement. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not, does not have works? Can that faith save, save him? That's chapter 2, verse 14. It's not on the screen. Here's a couple of more. Uh, a couple more. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Do you want to be shown... You foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless, he says in verse 20. And then verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith apart from works is dead. What was Sardis's problem? You're dead. I know your works and you're dead. Your works are incomplete. You're dead. They supposedly had faith, but they didn't have the obedience to Christ that is manifested that comes as a result of that faith. I know your works. You're dead. So a dead church rejoices in grace, but doesn't go on to do good works. Friends, what are the works that you need to complete? What are the, the good deeds that you have left undone? If you claim the name of Christ, he has saved you by grace through faith of no works of your own. But he has saved you to do good works. You're his workmanship. His 
beautifully crafted piece of art to do the good works that he has called you to. Where are you lacking in your obedience to Christ? Where are you insufficient or incomplete in your following of Jesus' commands and demands? You need to wake up. We all need to wake up. And that's the solution that Jesus gives. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Go back to the gospel. Remember the gospel. You received it. You heard it. You repented. Keep it. Fall in line with that. If you don't, Jesus gives his consequence for disobedience. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, he says. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus will come to this church, but he's not going to come in a supporting role. Um, this is going to come in a, in a conquering role. This imagery there of a come at you like a thief. This is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to Jesus' second coming. First um, Thessalonians 5, Paul says, for, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, his second coming, will come like a thief in the night. Right? Peter says the same thing, 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. These are in reference to Jesus' second coming. I think that that's possible that Jesus is connecting that here. But it could be because he's giving a conditioned response to them. Like, you need to wake up. And if you don't wake up, then I'm going to come at you like a thief. It could be referring to his end time judgment. It could be to a unique and particular judgment. Uh, I don't know. But all I do know is that Jesus would it promises to come in judgment. And um, boy, you don't you want to see Jesus coming if you're a Christian, you wanted to see him coming as savior. You wanted to see him coming as your deliverer, as your redeemer. You don't want to see him coming as thief in the night. Remember Sardis's capture twice in their history. Both while the watchmen neglected their duty. Remember the name Sardis became almost, you know, code word synonymous with complacency, lack of vigilance, uh, false sense of security. Jesus is saying here, hey, kind of like that Persian soldier who climbed up that ridge to get up into the city that nobody was guarding because you thought you were going to be safe, snuck up the wall unanticipated uh, and unnoticed. That's how I'm going to come. You don't want Jesus to come like that. But he goes on to give a little bit of a commendation to them here. And then he gives some promise for the conquerors. And so here I want to end with the, this words of hope that, that Jesus has for us. There's still a hope for a dead church. And that hope is found in the, the small number of faithful followers that are there. And the hope for a dead church is that those who, who, are, who are dying would wake, would wake themselves up. Notice what he says in verse 4. Yet you, you have still a few names in Sardis. 
people who have not soiled their garments. So they've not participated in the idolatry, the sexual immorality that would have been uh, evident in all of these cities. It says they have, they have preserved themselves. They have not mixed and mingled into, compromised. They've not tolerated these kind of sexual sins. They've remained faithful to Christ. And he says, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Notice he says a few. And here again is the use of the word names. Kind of a, the, the name is the code word for the whole person. You have a, a, a few whole believers there, right? He just uses this play on word name. I just think it's kind of cool. It's just a side thing. Um, it's kind of the example of somebody. I heard somebody use it this way. Like when somebody calls out all hands on deck, you're not thinking a whole bunch of hands are going to show up, you know. Like when he says, you have a few names there, you know, it means the whole person's going to show up and they're going to help. Um, when you have names there, you mean you got some believers there who are clinging to, to Christ. And then look at the promises that are available for those who remain faithful and for, I think, for those who will wake up. Four things. Fellowship with Jesus. And they will walk with me. We kind of think of walking as like it's, a, it's an activity or exercise we have to do to get from one place to the next. You know, here, biblically speaking, this walking, walking with me is a conveying of fellowship. So we'll have fellowship with Jesus. And we'll share in his victory. And they will walk with me in white. He goes on in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And we get a picture of this a few chapters later, a few chapters later, when one of the elders that um, John sees in this vision addresses him and he says, who are all these people clothed in white robes? And he says, you know, you know, you tell me. And the elder said to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So we have fellowship with Jesus and we share in his victory. Three, we'll have assurance of eternal life. Verse five, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. See this book at the end when Jesus unveils this book and the scrolls of whose names are in the book of life. And he says this promise, and it's really emphatic. It's like a double negative uh, I, I will not, never will, something like that in the Greek. I mean, it's really strong. I will never, not ever, blot his name out. Again, the use of the word name. So assurance of eternal life. And number four, their name will be confessed by Jesus before the Father. I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. I love this. Elsewhere, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. I love Jesus here doesn't say I will. Like I said earlier, I will confess. I will acknowledge before my father in heaven. He says, I will confess his name. Sorry to say a name. Their reputation. You had some names of people who have not soiled their garments. 
those who remain faithful to me, your name will never be taken out of the book of life. And I will confess your name before my father. Wow. If you remain faithful to Christ, think of that. Think of that. Think of Jesus standing there before the Father. Think of you coming into his presence. And then Jesus goes, oh, and this one here. His, and then calling out your name to be accepted before the Father. Friends, a dying church loses their first love for Christ and others. May we not lose our first love for Christ and others. Dying church compromises with pagan culture. God, friends, may we never compromise with those pagan practices that are around us. Dying church is just too tolerant, allowing sin and false teaching to invade. May that never be true of us. But, but more, more so here and relevant to today's passage, friends, a dying church relies on their reputation and ignores their reality. What's, what's your reality? What's our reality? A dying church rejoices in grace, but doesn't go on to do good works. Friends, what is left to be done? Amen? Amen. Let's stand, shall we, for closing prayer. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, we're overwhelmed with gratitude of your word, and we thank you for the way that it challenges us. God, may we see the ways uh, in which we can identify with what you are saying to the church in Sardis, and may we take that warning. God, in the ways in which um, we need to wake up to return back to what we've heard and what we have received, that we return back to the gospel of Christ. God, we ask that you would help to wake us up, make us diligent. Don't let us fall asleep at the wheel. So we thank you for the ways that your word has challenged us in that regard, and we thank you as well for the word of assurance that we have that if we remain faithful to you, we will walk with you. We will share your victory. You will clothe us in white. That you will never blot out the names, our names from before your father. And you will confess us before him. God, may those truths alone. And those truths being able to be true because of Christ and his death for us. May those facts inspire us to go on and complete the work you would call us to do. We ask you to do this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Brothers and sisters. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ
and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.